This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. The upper Midwest was short on moisture this year. What can we learn from what has worked well and not so well in drought-stressed fields? And what is the outlook for 2022? Plus, I look back 25 years to a story few folks know that impacted what I do today. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot BioProven. For the past two years, I've had a chance to use a new corn nitrogen product firsthand in my fields, Pivot BioProven. Pivot BioProven adheres to the root of the corn plant, creating a mutually beneficial nitrogen-generating partnership that stays strong all the way through harvest. It's weather-resistant and sustainable and helps achieve more predictable and productive yields than ever before. This year, I've been specifically looking at how Pivot Bio Proven can help replace some of the synthetic nitrogen I normally use. That could save us money in a time of higher input costs while supplying the corn the nitrogen it needs. Pivot Bio Proven may change the way you think about nitrogen. I hope you'll learn more by going to pivotbio.com. Last week, I made a quick trip to the Red River Valley to shoot some TV segments talking to farmers that have been through a drought this year. Bo Jacobson farms and owns Premium Ag Solutions in Hitterdahl, Minnesota, just east of Fargo. Not only does he cover a lot of ground with his own farming, he advises many farmers in the area as well. We did this interview at the edge of the cornfield they were harvesting. A lot of the harvest is already complete in that area, a sign of how dry it was this summer. We focused on what practices are working well and what all of us can learn that will work where we may live and farm. We're at Hitterdahl. We're not that far from Fargo on the Minnesota side here. Just talk about the lay of the land up here. You know, we've got kind of a little bit of everything around here. There's some valley land out of the Red River Valley that comes up into some ridge soils and sand veins, gravel. Um, We get on the backside of this to the east, and we've got... uh, prairie pothole type country and uh it, it's a it's a mix of everything here a little bit of rolling hills and a little bit of flatland talk about this year very dry in a lot of spots uh, or did the drought hit late uh, it looked early like it might be pretty good you know the western uh, dakotas that kind of come across they they started dry continued dry all year we started off drier than average but was uh adequate about perfect is what i would say um Great soil conditions at planting, just enough rain to keep things growing throughout the growing season. And about the 10th of July, the rain shut off for about 40 days here. But, uh, you know, so we, we were fortunate for a while. We, we have some subsoil on some preventive plant ground, uh, anything in the, uh, some wheat stubble that held a little bit better moisture. So, and as you move east, the ground gets a little bit heavier and, and uh, held in a bit better. So we, a wide variation, but uh, we're... We're struggling, but we're fortunate compared to the guys to the west and to the north of us. One of the things you talked about earlier was fertility, and I'm interested in what folks are doing up here, especially with higher input prices. How are you looking into next season about still getting the fertility you need, but trying not to break the break the bank when doing that, or is there a way to do that? 
Fertility wise, we've been able to split apply some nitrogen. So uh, start off with a base rate, uh, either a two by two with the planter that we can do a variable rate with to save some cost. Uh, top dress, late side dress uh, allows us to, look, if, if we have some opportunities coming, get some timely rains, we can put that full boat on. Uh, if we start dry and stay dry, we can dial that back and, uh, and hopefully save a few bucks at the end of the year if it is a challenging year again. The type of nitrogen, what are you using up here or is it still a pretty wide variety? Uh, urea base, you know, as a dry fertilizer and then 28% is what the majority of the guys are using for a uh, UAN supply. Other than nitrogen, what are the fertility issues? Are you looking at P and K quite a bit, some of the other micros, or what's uh, the case up here? Yeah, we're using a, a dry P and K blend to maintain, basically, or build if we got uh, competitive fertilizer prices. This year, maybe a year where we borrow a little back, back out of the bank we built in the cheap years. So uh, we're using a lot of sulfur, whether it's a dry sulfur or a ATS in with our 28%. Uh, we're using some micro packs. We've been dabbling with uh, some of the other biologicals. We've been doing a, we did about a thousand acres of tests with uh, Pivot Bio this year. Uh, so far, we have uh, only been in one field of that and seeing consistent results with that. So, you know, they've got a plus 40 product that's coming out this year. So we may go with that and cut back, uh, you know, on our end supply by 30, 40 units and, and see if we can maintain yield for a cheaper price. Certainly this year we bought cheaper inputs and we still have a good price. That gap's going to narrow, but do you think because the crop prices are still, I guess we'd say historically good, will people be willing to go ahead and, and do the normal uh, fertilizer program that they have in the past? Do you think they're going to cut back or where do you think we stand now in the fall looking ahead to the spring? You know, I think the progressive growers are going to continue to use fertility the way they always have. Um, very rarely does it ever pay to cut fertilizer, especially on the nitrogen. You know, we found that we can rob from the P&K bank a little bit because what we find in the test isn't 100% available that year anyway. What has been working well up here for weed control? Is it herbicide, cover crop, uh, tillage? What is the, the go-to here? You know, in our cooler climate, we still rely heavily on tillage. Uh, a lot of it is just to manage excess moisture in the spring and uh, um, and, and basically bury residue. Uh, we're not fortunate enough, as, like the southern states, where you've got the climate that'll help you break down that that material. Uh, cover crops, we're dabbling with that. We've uh, been working with NRCS on a handful of projects. We've been doing a fair amount of it on our own on our low residue crops, like our edible beans and our sugar beets. Uh, definitely a good start, but we need to have them planted by the 10th or 15th of September to get any activity out of it. Uh, if we go into harvested corn, uh, we'll, we'll, we won't get it to take, we won't get enough GDUs or enough heat units to get it up and going. You mentioned that we, we've seen some changes, I think, in temperatures, climate. Has that changed what happens here, though, and making some new possibilities, or do we just know enough yet, do you think? You know, I, I think it's, the opportunity is there, but, uh, you know, we'll get years where we get... Uh, get a nice stretch, a nice warm summer and, and an early harvest and the, the cover crop thing is going to work great and then we'll go back to one of those cooler years and uh, and uh, we've had a, a two out of the last three years we've harvested corn in March and April so it's uh, it's challenging to get a cover crop started with, but I guess we still have the crop on the field. <laughs> That's true I don't know if you guys are, are flying them on up here or, or not but it's pretty hard to, to plant it at least on the ground through standing crop. Yeah yeah we've flown some cover crop on into corn and flown some on into soybeans uh, like I said, with the NRCS project we've been working with, uh, I think there's definitely some merit to it. Uh, you know, soil health is uh, is the number one thing. If we don't take care of the soil, it won't take care of us. So, And I don't think there's a farmer that would disagree with us on that. 
you mentioned tillage, and it is important up here because of your growing season and the length. But with the the advent of some of the carbon programs, sustainability, regenerative ag, and all this, are you hearing much talk up here yet that we may have to or want to change because now it becomes lucrative to try some of these programs, or are we far enough into it yet to know? I don't know if we're far enough into it to know. Um, we have uh, a huge arsenal of uh, tillage practices, everything from rippers to high-speed discs to uh, to field cultivators yet, uh, and uh, harrows and, and uh, coulter discs. So it's a... It, Every soil type, every season has a has a different opportunity to use a different tool. So, you know, on our lighter soils, we try and manage that with, with a very minimal tillage, just enough to get the residue off and get a crop planted next year. In our heavier soils, we we may have to go in and do heavier tillage just to take care of combine ruts or sprayer ruts um, and get that ground black so it warms up in the spring and, and allows the crop to get going. With your role with being with precision planting as a seedsman and so forth, what are the problems you're helping to help producers solve right now, or is there a common problem that you think a lot of them are finding challenging? You know, I don't know if there's a common problem. Um, you know, planter maintenance is one thing that gets overlooked on a majority of farms. And, uh, you know, getting, making sure you've got all your geometry right, uh, making sure you've got loose ends, you know, taking care of disc maintenance, uh, Keeping everything aligned, you know, that's a big thing. Uh, the Delta Force in the precision planting world has been a game changer for allowing guys to get seed depth. And, uh, you know, the V-drive, V-sets has allowed that spacing, especially in our narrower rows, to get everything spaced out and, and get equal uh, stock diameter and, and uh, healthier ears. Let's talk about corn for just a moment. Talk about row spacing and populations, because I think you may do things a little differently here than some other parts of the, the country. Yeah, you know, I would say 80% of our row spacing is 22-inch rows, which was really pushed from the sugar beet industry. You know, it's one of the, an odd pocket in the area. Most part of the country is 30 or 20. Uh, so, yeah, we, we kind of end up in oddball. So we've got 66-foot planters and 44-foot planters and 132-foot sprayers and 88-foot sprayers. So we, it's uh, our, our equipment doesn't travel very far. It's up and down the valley and, uh, and out a little ways. So... Um, but yeah, so the narrow row spacing, it, it does allow us to plant our corn, our soybeans, our sugar beets, all with one planter if need be, and our edibles. So it, it's a nice balance for us. Uh, we did go back to running an air seeder this year for our soybeans, but, uh, you know, in the corn, it's we got a narrow planting window uh, between moisture and, and getting late. So we need to get that corn in in about a 5 to 10 day window. And, and uh yeah, the 22-inch rows and that planter size has really helped us. And we've went with uh, large frame tractors on the planters. We carry our in-furrow on the planter bar, and we carry our 2x2 two two on the tractor and a pull cart. So it gives us about 200-acre uh, capacity for seed fill and, and fertility fill. So we can cover some ground in a given day with the high-speed planters. Does that mean that used equipment up here tends to stay in a pretty narrow area? Just sugar beet country then? Yeah, you know, when you start talking planters and uh, sprayers, yeah, they're pretty pretty well exclusive from, uh, you know, northern Iowa to the Canadian border or into Manitoba a little ways. So they, and they probably get about 100 miles either side of the Minnesota-North Dakota border. For a lot of us that are in farming, unless we live in this area, we hear about sugar beets but don't know a lot about it. Has it been a good uh, market for the sugar beets up here? It looks like it's a pretty important part of what you do. You know, it's been a very important part of this region. Um, it's created a lot of opportunity, a lot of wealth, and a lot of jobs up and down the Red River Valley. And if you look around to a lot of the beet co-ops in the U.S., it, it does the same everywhere. So, uh, you know, it's labor-intensive. Uh, 
the factories are employing a lot of local people, keeping a lot of money local. So it's been a great crop for the area. It's been a great crop for our operation. You know, it's got its highs and lows. You, you win big and you lose big, but uh, year in and year out, it's been the backbone of our operation. Do you find it's part of just the rotation of crops then for a lot of farmers here? It is, you know, and not everybody is a sugar beet grower, but uh, in some way, shape, or form, it influences everybody a bit. So um, it's, uh, you know, a three- to four-, five-year rotation on crops. Uh, you want to be on square, level ground uh, as far as efficiency. You know, we don't have the ability. Uh, lifting and, and rotobeating is challenging on curves. Uh, so it's, uh, it's we're, we're only running about 50% of our ground that we're rotating the beets through. So, but usually the ground that doesn't work for that works for edibles, so it's kind of a good balance. So as we look ahead to 2022, are you looking forward to getting over to that year because of the drought, or what do you see ahead here? You know, I'm cautiously optimistic about 2022. Um, You know, with what's going on in the world right now, um, potential inflation setting in, I think that is, is potentially good for commodity prices, but is going to be very challenging for our inputs, so... You know, living through the 12, 13 range when we come off the highs and fertilizer prices were at all-time highs and then fell apart. And if you didn't have grain contracted, you got left holding the bag. You know, so there's, there's some anxiety going into next year. But, uh, you know, as every farmer that's uh, that's ever farmed and probably listening to this right now, we are the eternal optimist, and I think next year will be better. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. It was interesting to see the land east of Fargo. There were a lot of combines in the field and grain trucks on the road saw several sugar beet trucks finishing up harvest too. In the second half of the show, I reminisce a bit to a story I think you may find interesting. On October 6, 1996, I got my professional, and I put the word professional in air quotes, I got my professional start in broadcasting as the first of my American countryside radio broadcasts was played at 6.35 a.m. on Saturday morning on KFEQ Radio in St. Joe, Missouri. Perhaps you may have heard some of those broadcasts, and now, 25 years later, I'm still traveling the countryside to gather those shows. I sat down with the editor of the show from day one, Tom Brand, as we look back at some of the stories very few folks know about how the show began and what keeps it running today. So, visiting with Tom Brand here, we're going to go back 25 years. Tom, October 6th of 1996 was the first broadcast for American Countryside. What do you remember from like August and September before then when we were visiting? I'm interested to see what you remember about us starting this show. So my first day at KFEQ Radio in St. Joseph, Missouri was August 7th of 1996. I was driving back and forth from Maryville, Missouri because my house in Shenandoah, Iowa hadn't sold. And so I was a commuter an hour back and forth each, each, each way. I think it was the first, maybe the second week that I was on the job, you'd reached out and called me and said, I've got this idea for this radio program. Um, You know, I've I've been doing some traveling around speaking, and I think there's a great way to to tell some stories similar to what Charles Corrald has been doing with his his television program. And so I said, yes, it sounds like a great idea to me. Let's get together. And I think that's 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 my recollection as to how things got started. I've forgotten that it was so close to when you had started there. And so people may want to know that you and I both went to Mizzou together, so we knew each other from there. So do you remember when we went to Gene Millard? to pitch this idea because I don't know that you got to make the call. Gene probably had to make the call on it, didn't he? Yeah. Bob Orff would have been the program director. Gene Miller was the station manager. And I think after you and I visited, then we sat down with Gene 
and I'm not sure if I was in on all that meeting or not, but I know there is a discussion with Gene about doing this program, adding it to our Saturday morning lineup. This just seemed like a good fit. The way I remember was the, the initial concept for the show was for you to just tell the story without any sound bites. And it was Gene's encouragement that said, I think you ought to let the, the people do their talking as well. That's right, because I never intended to interview people. <laughs> and Gene then said, yeah, this will be pretty good once you actually do the interviews. And I remember sitting there in the meeting thinking, I'm going to have to interview all these people. And, and now I know it would have been silly to never interview them, because interviewing the people is what makes the, the show neat, I think. Yeah, I think so as well. You know, I, I think about just the hundreds, actually thousands of, of different people that have been on that program, and just, you know, the the little tee-hee-hee in the, in the old woman's voice or just the way, you know, somebody might talk that's from not in the Midwest, um, just just some of the, the dialogue that we've had with people, how much fun that, that's been to be part of telling the story. I don't know if you remember this. Did you know in all the broadcasts we've done, there is only one that never had any sound bites in it from an interviewee, and it was show number one. Because that was still the prototype, and I'd never interviewed anybody till then. I don't know if you remember that or not. See, I was racking my brain as to what the first program was. Well, I, I remember what it was. It was the president of the New Jersey Sweet Potato Association. Huh. <laughs> but you never heard from him. So I just told his story. And then after that, we began to do these. And you may remember this, too. Initially, some of the interviews were done by phone until right. I figured out that well, this works a lot better doing them in person, not only from sound quality, but just, I don't say anybody could do the interviews over the phone, but it makes it unique when you say, we did all these in person. Well, and I think it ties in really well with traveling the countryside. Um, it, it just, it, it helps complete the story that you were there, um, capturing that. And in fact, I think once we went to a daily broadcast instead of just a weekend broadcast, that's when we said, we're going to make sure it's first generation audio from this point forward. Whenever we went daily then, did you think we would be able to come up with enough interviews? Because I remember when three years in, we got the opportunity to go daily. I thought, how are we ever going to come up with enough material? So Bob Pretty with the Missouri Net out of Jefferson City, Missouri, did a across our wide Missouri radio program. And I had worked at Learfield and knew how Bob had put those programs together. And I think he had two, maybe three years that was kind of in a rotation. And it was what was happening in Missouri on the state. I thought, we'll get the point where we'll be able to run repeats you know after a few years of doing this and whatever we pick up new will be fresh i i i was optimistic we'd be able to continue to to get enough um interviews to to do a daily program i would have never guessed that 25 years later we'd still have enough interviews to get a daily program (laughs) well we got the opposite problem there's never i mean there's more stories than you could ever collect i think yeah i I know there's been times i've said hey if you're traveling this part of the country i came across you know this this good lineup of stories and and i tell you if if i could afford just to take a week off and travel the countryside and and do interviews for you i've got a heck of a lineup and and i could cover a lot of miles uh, in a in a pretty short amount of time and just just begin to to grace the surface of, of what is available out there well we should tell this to people i mean we we've done every interview on location and i've done i would say by far the, the bulk of them but you and you used to do more before you got in the position you're at out of all the ones you've personally done what have been your favorite ones? Because you get to meet a lot of interesting people and go some interesting locations. Well, National FFA Convention has afforded me a great opportunity to interview some people that I wouldn't have ever had access to. Um, Mike Rowe is one that yeah. comes to mind real quick. Henry Winkler. I was, was Fonzie, yeah. Yeah, Fonzie was, that, that was a surprise interview to me. And, and even more surprising was the compliment that I got 
secondhand afterwards. Um, he, he, he thought it was one of the best interviews he'd ever done. Now, the little story behind that is I never asked him about playing the Fonz. I knew that, that he didn't like being typecast about that. I did ask him about the Happy Days staff, and I did get him to do an A, yeah. you know, at, at the end of it. Those are a quick couple of notables that stand out. Do you know what the shortest interview was in American countryside history? I know the answer, but I don't know if you know. Height-wise or, or length-wise? <laughs> <laughs> I mean length of the actual interview that I did. Hmm, I don't know. It was Willie Nelson. And it was not because Willie Nelson was mad or anything like that. I was supposed to have the interview set up after one of his concerts, and somewhere the wires got crossed, and I'm just in the regular receiving line, but I had my recorder. And I thought, yes. I'm going to try to pull this off. And I said, you know, Mr. Nelson, glad to be here. We were supposed to do a little interview. There was some confusion. Would you have just a moment? And he was super gracious. And I remember a minute and 43 seconds. I figured I'm not going to push it. I have enough to do a show. And that was the shortest interview in American countryside history. And that's one that I'd forgot about. But I remember you, you telling me, there's not a lot to work with here, but we got enough we can put a program together. So we did. <laughs> I would say that to me, and I'm sure you're going to probably say the same thing, to me, looking back 25 years, that has been the fun part is just basically just putting a microphone in front of somebody and just letting them tell their story because it's just them telling who they are and what they do. You know, my favorite part of, the, of starting the interview is um, introduce yourself to our American countryside audience. And sometimes it's the I'm Tom Brand of the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. That's, it's short and sweet. The next time, I'm Tom Brand, a native of County, Missouri, grew up on a farm just south of Hopkins. And then the then they just and when you get that you're like okay this is going to be a golden interview you, you kind i mean it, it i i don't want to classify everybody as being good or bad that way but you can tell when the, when those people really do their introduction boy sit back because it's going to be a fun interview to do any idea how many shows we've done i mean i could just go to the calendar and count up the days so I've done the, the math saying five days a week and, you know, so many years worth of programs. I know we're above 6,000. I can't remember if it's 6,200 or 6,400. I'm going to guess out of the 6,000 programs, you've probably done the interview that would have been with 57, 5,800 of those. And I've probably done 200 yeah. shows worth of, of interviews. So I've just done a blip on the screen compared to the number of people you've talked to and the number of miles you've traveled in doing it, too. But you have edited basically every single one of them i think i've edited every radio program except in 2013 i had a heart attack and bypass surgery and um i uh, i took a couple or three weeks off i believe they ran repeats while while i was in the hospital i honestly don't know it's kind of a blur to me but other than that um i've i've edited every one of those programs and Certainly, we're glad you're still with us, but it also made us realize you were the only one that knew where the programs were. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm glad that we've stuck some on hard drive um, because it, it, it's, it's made it easy to, to quote-unquote, index them that way. Um, you know, I, I often joke about um, doing the, these programs, and, and remember this one? I'll, Beth, my wife, is usually there, you know, because I, Thursday night's editing night, and so she'll hear a lot of these. And, Do you remember that program? Well, I don't think what the audience realizes is sometimes the program is a minute and 40 seconds long without the intro and out the commercial. So I'm always aiming for something that's a minute 36 is ideal. Now, if it ends up being minute 32, that's fine, but minute 36 gives you room for, for uh, the music. Um, I'll end up with a program sometimes that's 142, and I'll have to go back and find six seconds. 
and you can take out us and ums and and you find 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 these words that sometimes aren't necessary it's made me a much better editor and i think may have translated over to how i do some writing now but my my kids and beth will tell you that after i've made an edit like that i'll i'll make the declaration out loud i am an editing genius <laughs> self-proclaimed so i don't know what that's worth but yeah i've I've had guys say why don't you use time compression and i i I guess i'm a purist i i don't want i don't want to change the pitch of anybody's voice i don't want to change the the meter of anyone's voice that that just makes it sound unnatural so 25 years how long can we keep doing this well i was wondering the same thing the other night you know as to as to how we can keep doing this up there are so many stories out there to be told that we, we could do this for another 25 years. Oh, yeah. i got to do the math and think how old I would be. Um, I might pass the editing along to somebody else, but if I could still nah. keep my toe in the water, um, I, I just enjoy it so much. Um, yeah, there, there's sometimes that programs don't come together and, and computer software fails, but but uh, the, the stories that I've enjoyed, that places I've never been to, but I'll see something come on the History Channel, or I will travel down here and I'll say, hey, we did an American countryside about this. It's just made it um, made it come more to life for me because of that. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I hope you're uh, still wanting to do it because I'm still planning to keep doing some interviews. That's great news to me. And, and Thursday nights, everyone knows uh, that that's editing night in the Brand household. For me, it's been a great adventure just being on on this side of the of the of the program and and just seeing the stories and, and hearing the stories come together. I appreciate you joining us here for Farming the Countryside and hopefully for those American Countryside broadcasts as well. While I've been on the radio now for 25 years, I'm still a farmer from Northwest Missouri, but I do enjoy the chance to share some of those interviews and stories with you each week. It's been a wonderful way to meet others and learn and hopefully share ideas to help all of us along the way. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.